0: It's brought about like a big conversation around Bitcoin DeFi, around just doing more with Bitcoin than just, you know, peer-to-peer transactions and holding your value in satoshis. All of a sudden, there's conversations about uh, things like the stacks environment, uh, which tries to bring more functionality and, and like sort of Bitcoin DeFi to Bitcoin.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, product architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, research analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently.
2: Hey guys how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing? doing well doing great. How was your weekends? Busy as usual, but uh more work than than play for me. I don't know about you guys. Well, I'm sorry to hear that <laughs> you 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 dug out from all the the snow that you've had up there in the far north yeah we got a we got a healthy dose. Uh, I'm looking forward to taking advantage of it at some point, but uh didn't get to do it this weekend
1: yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully this is like the trend for March, because certainly the rest of the winter hasn't been particularly good for winter sporting. Yeah, I spent my I spent my weekend shopping for a couch, which I, I think I'd rather shop for a car than a couch. If I'm being completely honest, I think like they've they've like really done a nice job in the car market of just like streamlining the whole process where you really like all of like the haggling and the negotiation, like. Really isn't a thing anymore, which I guess that's to the detriment of like the consumer. But um, I think that you know, like even going like into like th- these these showrooms for couches, like there isn't five hundred options to paint a car really, unless you're buying like a Rolls Royce, I guess, right? But like th- th- these salesmen, like th- they they are and women, they they talk about you know, like how there's, you know, 600 different fabrics you can choose from. And for me, that's too many choices. Give me like four, <laughs> a white, a gray, some sort of vibrant color. <laughs> um, but At yeah, least you don't is, have to register your couch. Ex- well, that's true. That's true. And I I don't think you have to pay like, uh, you don't have to pay like excise tax on it either. So <laughs> um, pay insurance insurance on it. So. Uh, But anyway, yeah, I'm happy. um, I'm happy. It's it's Monday and I actually don't have to think about that until next weekend when I probably have to make a decision on it. But um, anyway, let's uh, let's jump in. I know we have quite a bit to talk about today. Um, Parth is, uh, Parth is coming home from a conference, I think, so we won't have him today, but, uh, he'll be back next week. And I think he even plans to talk a little bit about, um, he was at East Denver last week. So uh, a little bit about what he, uh, what he saw and heard there. Um, but today, um, we're going to start by talking about a little bit about, uh, you know, where crypto meets banking and some news that we saw last week um, out of Silvergate. Um, We're also going to talk a bit about um, ordinals, uh, which are, you know, unique tokens on top of Bitcoin. Um, People are calling them Bitcoin-like NFTs, and we'll talk a little bit more more about what that means. Um, And then we'll we'll talk about some um, enhancements um, to Ethereum in the form of um, what they're calling account abstraction. So with that, Jason, you want to just... provide a little bit of an overview on um, Silvergate and, and kind of what we saw last week with that.
2: Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to and um, it's, it's interesting to be to be talking about this now because we see that um, Silverbank has been one of the uh, I'll call it premier banks that has worked with crypto companies over over time, particularly in the US. and you know they, they had some exposure to FTX. Um, And now in the months that have have followed the FTX um, bankruptcy, we saw Silvergate uh, come out last week and communicate that the bank thought that they might not meet the deadline for providing some additional data that is due to regulators uh, by March 16th in support of their December 31st financial statement filing. So basically, the bank said, you know, we've, we've, got some, we've got some more work to do. We want to be upfront about that and communicate to regulators and to uh, the community. And uh, the bank also acknowledged that they were uh, undergoing investigation by bank authorities and uh, the U.S. Department of Justice uh, and noted that the bank was unsure of its ability to uh, remain a going concern over the next year. And when you think about financials, you think about that type of phrasing, uh, ability to remain a going concern, it basically means, you know, will you be able to stay in business? And with that type of uh, uncertainty, we saw a number of their crypto customers or digital asset customers step back from relationships, uh, quoting an abundance of caution. So uh, we saw the likes of Paxos, uh, Galaxy Digital, Circle, Bitstamp uh, taking the step back. And we also saw that Silvergate came forward on Friday and uh, shared that based on a a risk analysis and risk-based decision, effective immediately they were going to uh, discontinue the Silvergate Exchange Network, or SEN, which uh, is a facility that allowed for digital asset companies to transact with each other, make payments 24 by 7 by 365. helped with a lot of the uh, non-banking hour movement of US dollar fiat. And you know, Silvergate also noted in that release that all other deposit related services remain operational. But you know, if you take a, a look back, uh, the Silvergate exchange network has been a, a very important catalyst in allowing crypto companies to do business with each other and make these payments outside of banking hours. Uh, a lot of folks were, were able to facilitate movement across different exchanges because exchanges may have had uh, accounts at Silvergate. So just to sort of break it down what that really means is within the bank's ledger, they could debit and credit value across their customer accounts without needing to use the Fed wire payment rails. So it's more like an internal transfer. And that, that type of activity it's pretty substantial, and I, I dug into uh, some reporting that Silvergate has on their website. Just to give you context: um, in Q4 of 2022, the Silvergate Exchange Network moved about 117 billion dollars of transfers amongst its participants. That was up 4% from the Q uh, prior quarter, Q3 of 2022. But it's actually down about 47 percent from the same fourth quarter period of 2021, when they moved uh, almost, you know, it was 219 plus billion dollars of value. So seriously, um, you think about that type of contraction. Uh, you ask what was the customer base like, and, and we saw, based on Silvergate's own reporting, that as of year end, their digital asset customer base stood at about. 1,620 folks. Um, but that was down a bit from Q3. We're still up year over year, but we don't currently know what that customer base on the dual asset side looks like today because of certainly the bank uh, communicating questions about their ability to remain a going concern. But also Q4, we're expecting to report a loss of about a billion dollars and more losses in January and February. So uh, there's a question of, of how much they'll continue to retain that customer base, particularly as they, they've chosen to suspend the Silvergate Exchange Network. But you might ask, uh, what, what does this mean? Uh, well, you know there are definitely some, some other players who are seeking to step into the, the, the void and provide fiat transfers for crypto customers. Um, I, I know that there's at least one company that has um, a payments license from the United Kingdom's Financial Conduct Authority, um, they're currently working on uh, fiat to crypto rails for euros, Swiss francs, and yen in Europe. So um, they, they're reportedly looking to accelerate dollars, but um, you know there there will be other other rails. Um, you know, and you may also ask: you have we matured enough? <laughs> Would stable coins be a, a, an opportunity? I think the answer there is yes, but keep in mind that you're you're retaining some counterparty credit risk to the issuer of the stablecoins.
0: Yeah, it seems a little bit like you're going backwards in time, right? This is one of the the big things that's that was noted previously that led to the rise of something like Tether, right? Large stablecoin that lives outside, in large part, the the regulated uh, U.S. banking system because. All of these companies had trouble getting access to traditional banks. And to your your point that you stated, Silvergate was sort of integral – in giving access to banking or, or banking-like products to a lot of these crypto companies. And the game theory from any single company's perspective, like you sort of said, there were five plus names over the past week that said we don't have exposure or we're you know de-risking and pulling our assets. The game theory almost hurts someone like in Silvergate's situation where if you do have any liquidity issues, they're going to be exacerbated by the fact that you know, I'm going to look out for my own company. And so I'm rightfully probably going to pull my assets from a, a bank that I think is facing liquidity issues. And that makes their liquidity issues worse. Um, so it sort of compounds the problem. And then I think, Jason, I don't know if you mentioned it, right? But right now, Silvergate and then Signature is the other big bank that that's being named as like you know, those, those are the two banks that bank the crypto industry in large part. And I saw, I think it was in December, Signature had sort of come out and say they wanted to decrease their exposure to crypto. And so it all plays at this issue of like going back in time from getting access to traditional banking payment solutions.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a good point, because if you, if you think about it from a traditional banking services angle, a lot of the banks are able to extend credit because they're utilizing deposits. And the actual liquidity is based on the flow of money. The, and you know I believe it some, some time ago it might even be a different ratio now, but uh, only about 12% of the global supply of money was represented by physical notes and coinage. So we have a lot more electric, uh, I'll call it um, digital value that moves back and forth. Um, The question about where that money lies and can you actually obtain that is something that these risk managers are contending with. So they're they're looking to to manage their risks as corporations. And, you know, understanding that you're dealing with a fractional reserve system, you have to uh, you have to proactively um, position your company to essentially retain value, retain access to that liquidity. So I think you're right. it, It is challenging. Uh, but I, again, I sort of think about stablecoin for a moment, and if you have a fiat-backed stablecoin that has provable reserves, then you might feel more comfortable with that than uh, than worrying about potential um, counterparty risk from a uh, another depositor for an institution.
1: Yeah, and I just wonder like how this plays with the industry at large, right? As Jack mentioned, this this problem kind of dates back to the earliest days of crypto, where it was really hard to become banked if you were a crypto company early on. And and with the kind of introduction of, of Silvergate and Signature and other you know providers that were kind of crypto centric, right? Um, that improved, but now it seems like we're we are taking maybe a little bit of a step back. And the question really is: is where are these people going, right? If they're if they're leaving Silvergate, um, you know, certainly the the larger companies um, will likely be able to establish banking relationships or have pre existing relationships with traditional, quote unquote, banks, right? But this could, could hurt smaller companies, right? Because we know certain regulators like like the Federal Reserve, the OCC and the FDIC have, have said to banks, there's been no official change in, in regulation or regulatory guidance, but um, have basically said, if you're going to interface in with crypto... Broadly, right, um, and that could be holding reserves for staple coins or maintaining accounts on behalf of crypto exchanges. Um, you need to be really careful and be prepared to have kind of a higher level of oversight, which you know no one really, I, I think, wants that, right? Because of the the kind of inherent risks associated with facing these companies and these projects, it, it kind of is creating a little bit of a squeeze, I think, and maybe in the in the short term we'll see that where people are getting pushed maybe out of the banking system or to suboptimal providers um, in the absence of really good services that are offered from a number of providers?
2: Yeah, we, we've talked ourselves about special purpose depository institutions or speedy banks that are being um, you know, created in Wyoming. We, we knew of Custodia, I believe Kraken also had set one up. So there are attempts for crypto companies or companies wanting to service crypto to to find the a, a positive solution. And I believe in those cases they're deposit only, not lending institutions. Uh, and we, we've to- spoken before about Custodia and their their um, their goal of obtaining a Fed Master Account license. So I won't go into great detail there. But Ryan, when you talked about the, the regulators advising banks on how to manage risk or considerations uh, for how they manage risk associated with digital asset customers. If my memory's correct, there was a proposal recently that would require a bank to hold um, any crypto deposits or crypto related digital asset deposits as part of their balance sheet, which would constrain their capital uh, if that were to, to become a, uh, a rule that takes effect. So I, I think we've, we've learned a lot about systemic risk coming out of the global financial crisis. I think there are a lot of folks who are trying to ensure that uh, those lessons are not forgotten. But I think in some cases, uh, a risk-averse approach may lead to uh, other solutions and opportunities for entities that might be outside uh, or under managed by different regulators. We see the European markets and the, the markets and crypto assets coming forward with more clear regulations. I feel like a broken record every time I say that. You know, look, you know, if you're in the, in the US or North America, perhaps look to the East. You're seeing a little bit more. Um, clarity being given by some of those regulators.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, this will, this will be something to watch. I think, you know, it kind of has been slowly trending in this direction. And last week I think was the first kind of major, um, major development, but, you know, certainly we'll have to, we'll have to monitor this. And I know the industry is, this is an area of kind of ongoing concern, even beyond Silvergate, right. When we think about, you know, crypto and banking. All right. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's let's talk. Let's talk tech. So, Jack, do you want to you want to talk a little bit about, you know, ordinals, um, a lot of buzz around this um, over the last couple of months? And it seemingly came out of nowhere, but that's not really true. Right. I mean, it kind of dates back to the earliest days of Bitcoin. So I think um, if we could just start by talking a little bit about what it is, um, and then maybe we can we could talk about some potential use cases and what the impact is on the network as a whole moving forward.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I think we briefly touched on it, maybe a month ago. There was like a, a weekend where we started to see these ordinal inscriptions, and then we talked about it at the end of of one of these episodes, just as sort of like, hey, this is interesting. Maybe it's a fad that fizzles away or something, but it doesn't seem to be a, a fad that's fizzling away anytime soon. So I'll, I'll give a brief recap of what are ordinal inscriptions what some of the things that have been happening over the past month since we last talked about them, and then, then maybe we can chat about them. So ordinal inscriptions, there's sort of two words there, two pieces being combined. One is inscriptions, which is just you know, embedded data or text that you can add into you know, your transaction. Uh, and then ordinals are, or ordinal theory on Bitcoin is the use of unique numerical ordering of Satoshis that allow you to identify specific sats, which sats are one one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin. The smallest way you can divide a Bitcoin is into a Satoshi. And so we can uniquely identify Satoshis and we can inscribe arbitrary data or text or files. And so then you combine the two and you have a file that you can basically save into bitcoin and you can link it or track it using a specific satoshi and so like if you if you take just like ordinals on their own or ordinal theory uh, one can identify like the rarity of Satoshi, so you could believe in the the fact that like the first sat ever mined or the first sat after havings, which are rare but not as rare as the first sat ever mined, and you can sort of pull this logic through uh, a number of ways where ordinal theory could lead you to believe certain sats uh, are are not directly fungible with other sats. It's just a way of like thinking about it. And Chris, our, our director of research, actually did some research over the past week or two and, and sort of gave a little internal presentation to our research team and sort of used the great phrasing of, like, you can believe in, like, ordinal theory that certain Satoshis are worth more than others. But it's just a way of looking at it. And you don't necessarily have to believe that, right? One Sat East technically fungible with one sat if you go to an exchange, but at the same time, you could look through the lens of ordinal theory and identify certain satoshis as being more rare or unique than other satoshis. And then when you combine these inscriptions of adding embedded data, you can create what are like NFTs on Bitcoin or or digital artifacts on Bitcoin. And this really came up with uh, the launch of Ord Wallet in December. And now today, if we look back, there's over 250,000 inscriptions uh, on Bitcoin. Most of these are text or images, and we've seen uh, quite a number of inscriptions using ordinal inscriptions uh, over the past month or two. And Yuga Labs, right? Yuga Labs is the creator of Board Apes Yacht Club. Uh, I got corrected the other day when I said the creator of Board Apes Yacht Club and CryptoPunks. They're not the creator of CryptoPunks, but they own CryptoPunks now, uh, which both are, you know, two of the most, if not the most, uh, prominent collection NFT collections on Ethereum. They just launched, uh, they're calling it 12-fold NFT collection. It's a 300-piece collection that they just launched on Bitcoin. And so all of a sudden you had something that looked like this interesting fad that, that might fizzle out right away. You have folks like Yuga Labs coming in. You have uh, Casey Rodemore, who's like really... Uh, the person, sort of like the central figure uh, that many are pointing to as like sort of responsible for some of this taking off. And he's been you know, doing a number of podcasts throughout the Bitcoin space. And it just seems like something that's not going away and it's only becoming a bigger conversation. And it's brought about like a big conversation around Bitcoin DeFi, around just doing more with Bitcoin than just, you know, peer-to-peer transactions and holding your value in Satoshis. All of a sudden there's conversations about uh Things like the Stacks environment, uh, which tries to bring more functionality and, and like sort of Bitcoin DeFi to Bitcoin. Um, and again, like Bitcoin makes ex, uh, explicit trade-offs, right, to, to be intentionally simple. But then you could look at that and say, well, is that just a simple foundational layer that then you sort of put different things on the side of it or on top of it to the degree that it's possible? That's sort of one view. And I think that that's sort of the chain agnostic or use case agnostic view is like all of these use cases that we didn't think were possible are starting to be created. And, and some of them are silly, certainly. like You could look at some of these digital artifacts on Bitcoin and think they're silly, um, but some of them maybe down the line become really prominent and, and useful, or, or people see use in them, and therefore it creates fee revenue for miners and security for Bitcoin. That's one way of looking at it. And then I think the other way of looking at it is like the fundamentalists of Bitcoin, or you could say the, the true Bitcoin maximalist camp, uh, which would say, did Satoshi write about digital artifacts in the white paper? No, he wrote about peer-to-peer, digitally electronic cash, and we shouldn't have these things competing with you know, the monetary use case that Bitcoin was intended for. So I think it creates this interesting debate that we're seeing taking place. When we wrote our 2022 review, one of the phrasings that our research team for Fidelity Digital Assets used was like, 2022 was kind of a boring year for Bitcoin. Not necessarily a bad thing, but there wasn't that much happening. It was just, it was continuing to do what it was supposed to do. And that's great. And maybe that's always what Bitcoin will be. Now we're seeing all of this stuff take off. And it's kind of the exact opposite through the first three months of this year.
1: Yeah, I think for me being a miner the the kind of um implications for the network economics and the network security are the most interesting. You know, obviously it's been a really hard, you know, year for miners. Um, and so kind of the, the possibility of, you know, new monetization strategies via ordinals, I think is very attractive. And it's, it's part of the reason why we've seen um, some of the miners like Luxor, which operates a mining pool, embrace this. And, and they, they purchased Ordinal Hub, which is, you know, kind of like a, you know, I would say like uh, exchange dashboard, whatever you want to call it, the, um, you know, marketplace for ordinals, um, you know, I think. As we think about the next having at the you know late Q1, early Q2 of next year, miners are kind of staring down you know this this significant impact on on their revenue, right? And when when um, the block subsidy gets cut in half, and so the, the idea is, has always been that at some point, as we have more and more halvings, transaction fees will pick up to kind of, you know, fill that gap, you know, in addition to price, presumed price action, right, and the appreciation of Bitcoin. And obviously, over the last year, we haven't seen the price appreciation piece. So that's concerning, right. And so um, I think that's what has a lot of people who are proponents of this excited, uh, because it it does bring kind of new sources of revenue and new utility to the network um, that will ultimately, as you pointed out, Jack, benefit the security Security of the network, you know, continue to incentivize miners to, to you know, mine on the network, um, and thus bolster bolster the overall security and stability of the network. So, I think it it's neat. I think there's a lot of infrastructure that is going to need to be built here. Um, And one of the things that I wanted to ask you, Jack, is kind of how does this differ from your traditional, um, you know, Ethereum NFTs? Kind of at a high level. I know there's a lot of technical differences, but
0: yeah, I I don't want to miss misspeak on anything. Um, but my understanding is on NFTs themselves on Ethereum, uh, there is an added element of trust to the NFT issuer themselves. Whereas you know, what's, that's sort of one piece. The other side of the coin is there are these large marketplaces that already exist for you to be able to exchange. Now, a lot of them are in a, a more centralized fashion on Ethereum, like OpenSea. Um, counterpoints on to, to sort of Bitcoin and, and what's being created here would be that the embedded inscription like lives in the Bitcoin blockchain versus and I don't know if I'm doing a good job of describing this. Maybe I'm underqualified to, to answer this question. But versus like right now, this is completely new. So there's no real exchanges that are that are set up or taking place. Uh, Yuga Labs, like even just this morning, is getting backlash because the way that they've launched this 12 fold NFT collection is like they're taking custody of bidders Bitcoin. And then supposedly, if you don't win the the auction, then you're going to be sent back your Bitcoin, which. It's Yuga Labs, uh, not to say you should or shouldn't trust them, but like they're a large entity. In all likelihood, they'll probably send the Bitcoin back to people, but that's probably not a great precedent to be setting. And so you don't have a maturation of like true marketplaces. And then also it, Casey has, has sort of talked about this on some podcasts. It's like you need to really know what you're doing. Uh, you need to be running your own node if you really want to be like custodying and custodying the asset. Again, like wallet infrastructure isn't built for any of what's going on on Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, you could basically anything.
1: spend your NFT without Yeah, it's just that it's just a satoshi. It, right? Like,
0: yeah. Right. So, right. so there's probably some way that wallet infrastructure, if this continues to take off, can be built to be able to like uniquely identify it and make sure that if you make a transaction out of the same wallet that it's not spending those specific satoshis. I don't know if Jason has anything to add that's that's more intelligent than what I just said.
2: I, I wouldn't say more intelligent. I would say I, I think that you call out a lot of great points. You know there are there are other markets that exist today when you have an asset that is fungible but unique. And I, I would say even looking at like the mortgage backed security market, for example, you might have a, a a set of mortgage pools that have similar characteristics but one might be deemed a little bit of higher value because of the underlying loans that it represents. You can still deliver that mortgage pool to satisfy an obligation, but if you unintentionally deliver something of higher value, then you don't have recourse to retain it. There's no cancel rebook to say, I want to give you this mortgage pool as opposed to that. And in the, you know, using that analogy in the, in the Bitcoin space, so yeah, I might have an ordinal and I spend a, a SAT, and it, I send the wrong SAT and I've lost my ordinal. Um, you know, it's more than just the, the, the value of the Satoshi. So I think that's interesting. I, I will sort of go back a little bit and share my thoughts on what you know what Ryan was talking about in terms of, some, or Jack, you may have mentioned it. Some people are not happy about this application of Bitcoin. My personal view is that it's permissionless. You don't have to agree with it, but I do think you have to accept it. Um, and I, I was at a, a meetup recently in Dublin, and one of the, uh, the a speaker it was a lightning uh, actually a lightning focused meetup, and the speaker had been a Core Dev, and he was asked the question from the audience, "What do you think of ordinals?" And his response was, "It's permissionless, you know." Like again, so like it's interesting. Do you want to be principled around the permissionless nature of the network, or do you want to take a position about some uses being positive, some uses being negative? I, I don't really know, and everyone obviously entails their own opinion, but in, in my line of thinking, it's possible. It may not be preferable.
0: But it's it, yeah, Jason, to that point, there's this really interesting conundrum going on, which is I would say over the past like year or two, maybe it was two years ago, you started here uh, because of the, the burn mechanism of EIP 1559 on ETH. Uh, plus, then you combine it with merge causing a lower issuance rate on ETH. You get the you know, the net burn effect. So a deflationary supply and whether or not you want to believe it's ultrasound money or whatever. That was a narrative that started to take off in the ETH community, which was kind of the network was put first to create you know complex transactions or whatever you want to call it, different use cases. And then they're backing into this like money property, which is sort of Bitcoin's primary focus in realm. And so the, they're like, ETH is entering the, the monetary axis of like uh, looking at a, a blockchain or these databases. And now Bitcoin is doing the exact opposite at the start of this year is there's like conversation from Bitcoin, not that it's losing its core focus, but that all of these other things are now pushing Bitcoin on this axis of like complexity, usability, different use cases, this NFT and artifacts. And so you're seeing like, Bitcoin entering ETH's realm while ETH is entering Bitcoin's realm. I don't know how this all ends five or 10 years from now, but it's really interesting to see both worlds colliding at the other's you know, sort of primary use case. When we want to say that they're two different things, which is like the, the argument that I've sort of used in the past, it's starting to you're starting to see some of these lines blur between what's possible and what the design is of these networks are, even though they're, they are two different things with different trade-offs. And at the end of the day,
1: like the market is going to decide it, right? Like, just like, you know, like the kind of explosion of NFTs on Ethereum, like that didn't just happen, right? There was, there was a demand um, and that kind of Ethereum stepped in to Ethereum based NFTs stepped in to fill, right? It's possible that, I would say fairly possible that we see something similar happen with ordinals. Right. And it's really, unfortunately, I know we say this a lot, but like only time will tell, right. If there's, if there's sufficient demand, then you're going to see all of this additional infrastructure kind of crop up around, around it. Right. Um, And, and thus adoption is going to increase. So I think it'll be interesting uh, to, to, to watch, I do want to briefly talk about um, account abstraction. And this is something that um, we I'd want to talk about with Parth when he's back, because it was actually announced at the conference that he was at last week. Um, and so, basically, um, last week at WalletCon, as part of the Broader ETH Denver event, um, the Ethereum Foundation announced the launch of ERC 4337. Um, which is also known as account abstraction or entry point, um, which is essentially um, you know, a series of, en- uh, I would say, enhancements um, that are being deployed on Ethereum and other EVM-compatible blockchains like Polygon, Optimism, Arbitrum, uh, BNB Smart Chain, Avalanche, and Gnosis Chain, um, which kind of unlocks a whole host of of new capabilities as it relates to wallets. Um, and I think it's important to note that this, this is being, um, implemented via smart contract deployed on Ethereum, not an upgrade to Ethereum as itself. As we know, you know, with those types of upgrades, they take a really long time. This is, this is coming, um, via smart contract, um, which w- was thought to be pretty far away still. Um, and I think came as a surprise to a lot of people. Um, the you know uh, E Foundation basically said that they had um, completed an, an audit on these contracts um, with Open Zeppelin and that that they had passed, um, and that they were going to be deploying it on Ethereum. And so some of the kind of proposed or or perceived benefits of this, um, I would say, really that the biggest one is around kind of key management and how we think about seed, seed phrases, um, and as well as kind of private key management and kind of abstracting away, uh, no, no pun intended. Um, a lot of the, um, the complexity associated with those, um, those, you know, I would say aspects of, of, you know crypto management and and crypto transactions right so that's that's the first thing but there's there's a lot more beyond those two things um such as being able to kind of have a higher degree of programmability so being able to basically set up auto payments via a wallet having two factor authentication enabled when you send transactions um as well as i think this one is particularly interesting when we think about web3 and blockchain based gaming basically being able to generate like session keys which would remove the need to sign individual transactions when you're playing these games. um, And it kind of signs automatically during, you know, during a a particular gameplay. That's really cool because I think like, and I think Parth has talked about this in the past and I have dabbled with it a bit. When you play these games that rely on blockchain, like you're constantly signing if you're using a MetaMask. Um, you know and, and it's not a great UX. So I think this is a huge huge um, usability upgrade and now it's going to be on on kind of the the wallet providers and the different service providers to build on top of it to kind of unlock it for the average user but you know we talk a lot about kind of barriers around usability and I think, You know, there's a tremendous amount of excitement for this. Um, As I said, you know, people were not expecting it to come so soon. And so now I think it's going to be really a matter of kind of what the uh, what the implementations are with with existing and new wallet services. Um, I don't know. You guys have any thoughts on this?
0: You kind of hit the nail on the head there. We have not to change the subject, but Shanghai. Right. We just got news. Early test net of Shanghai, which is sort of your last battle if it goes successfully, uh, to then actually implement Shanghai, which is to allow validator staked ETH validators to then withdraw those assets and pull out their Ethereum if they if they wanted to. Um, that's happening on the 14th, the t- the last test net. Then early April is what the indication is if that goes successfully of when we could see Shanghai. After that you've put all of the sort of the merge piece behind you, right? Because Shanghai is really the last piece to, to finalize sort of the, the ability to stake and unstake your assets. Now we have, you said, EIP 4337 with account abstraction. We have discussion of EIP 4844. Sorry, I'm not trying to sound like a robot, uh, but 4844 <laughs> is the protodank sharding, which is uh, basically allowing or, or trying to optimize layer twos to settle their transactions Uh at a cheaper cost. And layer mm-hmm. twos are a big part of Ethereum's future of scaling. And to me, like 4844, 4337, account abstraction, proto-dank sharding, you start to combine all of these things. And basically, ETH is looking at its next phase, which is all around this theme of usability, making, you know, interacting with wallets easier, making transactions cheaper, making this thing potentially scale from, I don't know what it is, 100 million people to billion people, if it's possible.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that, that's a great point, Jack. I think all focus was on the merge and then the merge happened. And now people are, you know, thinking about Shanghai and kind of when that's happening and then it's like, what's the next chapter of Ethereum and like these upgrades are that right. And it's, i think promising to see um, that, there kind of is a roadmap beyond the merge because like it, we, I think, you know, there obviously was as a master plan and a roadmap for Ethereum, but I think it's easy to lose sight of when you're in the news cycle and all you're hearing about are these like very specific events. And so I think it all, it, it's kind of like supercharging the use case for Ethereum. Right. And, you know, all of these things cumulatively, I think to the extent that they're, you know, implemented successfully bode really well for the network, um, you know, for the next you know, the next cycle. So it'll be it'll be really cool to watch. And I think like, you know, bear markets are for building. And so, you know, now is the time for all of these different providers to be building on top of these enhancements, um, you know, so that we can improve, you know, user experience, improve adoption and, um, you know, hopefully bring it, bring it mainstream.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's probably the quote, bear markets are for building. <laughs> you know, we, we definitely are trying to live that ourselves. I I would just leave you with one last thought on this whole Ethereum um, evolution. It's feature functionality. You know, the more that you can integrate additional capabilities, the more uses that you will realize. And ultimately, you need to be thinking about it from a user perspective. So if users are asking for increased throughput, increased scalability, uh, increased privacy, uh, increased security when it comes to protecting and, and managing your, your private keys. I think those are, those net positives for, uh, for the Ethereum community to focus on. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right, guys. Well, this was a great discussion. Um, I'm absolutely going to put Parth on the spot when it comes to account abstraction and also uh, the difference between ordinals and, and, <laughs> and uh, uh, yes. Ethereum <laughs> NFTs from a technical perspective. So, uh, you know, stay tuned and come back next week for that. Um, but thanks, everyone, for joining the discussion. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. Have a great rest of your week.
3: Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and become illiquid at any time and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade Marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023. FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.